2: This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise, but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, May all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things. Suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world. Standing or walking, sitting or lying down during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude. Not holding to fixed views endowed with insight, freed from a sense appetites, one who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher, Maha Prajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher, Ehe Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher, Shugaku Shinryu. The perfect wisdom, Bodhisattva (coughs) Shri To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and peace-pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. Buddhas throughout space and time. All honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, maha Paramita. When Taigen is ready, he'll introduce tonight's
3: speaker.
4: Thank you, um, Patrick. Uh, so welcome, everyone. Um, good evening. Uh, for those who are new uh, to Ancient Dragon, I'm Taigen Leighton, the guiding Dharma teacher at Ancient Dragon Zengate. And I'm very happy to have with us this evening as our speaker, Zenishin Florence Kaplow, who was here uh, a week ago yesterday and also... Uh, Hi, Florence. Um, Florence is a uh, Soto Zen priest and teacher. She's also a Unitarian Universalist minister and an active environmentalist and formerly professional botanist. And she also is co-editor of a a wonderful book that I want to mention, The Hidden Lamp, which is a history of great women uh, teachers and Buddhist practitioners from India through... uh, China, Korea, Japan, America, and so forth. So anyway, um, Florence, thank you for coming again. And uh, it's all yours.
1: Well, it's good to be back. I see a lot of the same people. So there, there's a little bit of a kind of thread that runs through both these talks. So uh, those of you who were here before, I hope, I hope you enjoy So last time I spoke with you, it was 2021. It was last year, even though it was only eight days ago. So happy new year and welcome to the year of the tiger. I invite you to take a deep breath now and acknowledge that we, the whole world, have crossed a threshold the hinge of the year. Of course, that threshold is pretty arbitrary. There's no particular reason why this is the new year. In China, it's February 1st this year, the lunar new year, although that will also be an entry into the year of the tiger. And I feel like having... New Year's so close to the solstice, which was only two weeks ago, there's a kind of resonance after six months of things getting darker and colder and uh, grimmer in some ways. (laughs) Uh, Now we are in the part of the year where very slowly the light will be returning. And of course, all over the world, in many cultures, this hinge is celebrated with fireworks and food and blessings and toasts and house cleaning. I spoke last week, last year, a bit about the house cleaning preparations in New Year, leading up to New Year's in Japan, followed by a big uh, all day New Year's feast on the 1st. I spent New Year's Eve uh, with Upaya Zen Center in this strange new world where we can join uh, Zen Centers almost anywhere in the world. Uh, This is in Santa Fe, and they had a a sit for a couple of hours, and then the ringing of the bell for uh, 108 times, and it brought back many memories of other other New Year's spent at Zen places. Last week, I read to you an, uh, some haiku by uh, Mitsu Suzuki, who was Shuruyu Suzuki's wife and uh, then his widow for many decades and a, and a really noted haiku poet. And one of the things I, I talked about is that in haiku, which I, I didn't know, that there, there are five seasons recognized rather than four, our usual spring, summer, fall, winter, but also New Year's as its own season, which I think is pretty interesting. And I read some winter uh, haiku last week and this week, I'll read you a few New Year's haiku. And one of the things that is uh, paid attention to at New Year's are when you do something that perhaps you do all the time, but you do it for the first time in this year. And so these are a, a series of haiku about firsts. This first one I find quite moving because, of course, Shunri Suzuki um, talked a lot about beginner's mind. And this was written long, long after his death. First calligraphy of the year. Today, again, I write beginner's mind. Rooted. In my native place, I bow to Mount Fuji, first view of the new year. After many years living at San Francisco Zen Center, long after her husband died, she went back to Japan for the last part of her life. And I thought this one was sweet. Uh, this was written at San Francisco Zen Center in January of 1975. Dharma robes, sleeves rolled up, first sweeping of the year. Our culture has. New Year's traditions as well. And one of the uh, big ones are New Year's resolutions. Those often lampooned intentions we dream up every year to exercise more, to eat fewer cookies, to uh, be nicer, maybe if you're a Zen student, to sit more (laughs) more. Unfortunately, science has proven that nine out of ten New Year's resolutions have disappeared entirely about three weeks into January. A while back, I got interested in this word, resolution, and it has, it has a very interesting etymology. It's from the Latin, resolvere, which means to loosen or to untie. Or too free. We'll come back to that later in the talk. And uh, I found this sort of amusing. Uh, it's an old word, obviously, from Latin. And um, before the 15th century, it, it meant kind of the opposite of how we think of it now. It meant to be or act in a morally lax way, <laughs> in other words, to be immoral was uh, to be resolute. Uh, And then, for some reason, no one quite understands, it became what we think of today, which is this determination to adhere to a cause or purpose. I I like the word resolute. It, It makes me straighten up my spine a little bit. In Zen, we don't talk a lot about resolutions, But we do talk about intention, which is, of course, really a synonym for resolution. And tonight, what I'd like to do with you is go a little deeper into intention and its cousin word, effort or energy, and whether or how the attitude with which we intend the attitude that we bring to whatever energy we're expending might be uh, as significant as the intention or energy itself. So tonight I want to talk about joyful intention, easeful effort. It seemed like a good way to start the new year. But first, in the spirit of the season and especially for those of you in Chicago where I understand that there's quite a bit of snow. We're still digging out. Uh, We don't have much snow down here in Champaign Urbana. We had a little bit. It was our first snow of the year, uh, which was pretty exciting. Late, I guess it would have been late on the first, early on the second. It's mostly melted off or not melted off but disappeared now. It's incredibly cold. Uh, So anyway, this uh, this con involves snow, and it's one of my very, very favorite koans, so I thought what a great way to start the year, to share it with you, and I promise you it is also relevant to this topic. I know that many of you who have been around the Zen world for a while know about the Blue Cliff Record, a great collection of koans, and this koan is not one of the cases in the Blue Cliff Record, but rather from one of the commentaries for, from case 22. And this is a story that's from about the ninth century in Tang Dynasty, of China. I'm going to, uh, this is the Thomas Cleary uh, translation. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit just because I think sometimes these old stories are uh, made more real when they're in our our tongue, our, our way of speaking. At the time of this story, there were two Zen monks who were very good friends, who were traveling on, on pilgrimage together. One of them was Shui Feng, and the other one was Yen Tu. And on their journey, they got as far as an inn on tortoise mountain in the modern province of Hunan. And there they got snowed in. And day after day, as they waited for the snow to melt, Yen Tu just slept, <laughs> while Shui Fang constantly sat in meditation. Finally, one day, Yentu yelled at his friend Shui Fong and said, get some sleep. Every day you're on the meditation seat exactly like a clay image. Another time, another day, you'll fool the sons and daughters of other people's families. Feng pointed to his heart and said, I am not yet at peace here. I don't dare deceive myself. And Yentu said back to him, I had thought that later on you would go to the summit of a solitary peak, build a hut of straw and propagate the great teaching, but you're still making such a statement as this. Shui Feng said, I am really not yet at peace. Yentu said, if you really like this, Bring forth your views one by one. Where they're correct, I'll approve them for you. And where they're wrong, I'll prune them away for you. Then you can go, if you have a copy of the Blue Cliff Record, you can go and read all the stories that Shui Fang shares about the famous Zen masters he's met and his encounters with them and what he learned from them and what he read and uh, Zen verses and how it affected him on and on. Finally, <laughs> Yen Tu interrupted him and said, haven't you heard it said that what comes through the gate is not the family jewels? Feng Shen. then what should I do? Yen Tu said, in the future, let if you want to propagate the great teaching, let each point flow out from your own breast to come out and cover heaven and earth. At these words, Shui Shuang was greatly enlightened. Then he bowed, crying out again and again, today on Tortoise Mountain, I finally achieved the way. Today on Tortoise Mountain, I finally achieved the way. Sometimes these last words are translated even more provocatively as today, Tortoise Mountain has finally awakened. I'll circle back to this koan again, but it has a lot to teach about effort and intention and also friendship and where we look for awakening mistakenly. I think I know why I love this koan so much and, and maybe what it teaches me. Will also be relevant for you. I'd like to go back more than a thousand years before, fifteen hundred years before, to the teachings of the Buddha on intention and on effort. Of course, these are both parts of the Noble Eightfold Path. Intention is. At the beginning of the path, very near to the beginning, seen as our heel and compass bearing, the clear thought that leads to good action, it's considered really foundational. And of course, we're intending all the time. When I reach over and pick up my tea cup, there is an intention in that movement And our character is shaped by a lifetime of those moment-to-moment intentions. Here are some words about this from the Dhammapada, the sayings of the Buddha. This may be familiar. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. That's the great intention. As the shadow follows the body, as we think, so we become. Jack Cornfield, the Vipassana teacher, says that intentions are the seeds that you plant in your heart that grow to become how you live your life. Uh, And Pema Chodron writes about her own intention. Whatever we're doing could be done with one intention. That intention is that we want to wake up. We want to ripen our love and compassion, and we want to ripen our ability to let go. We want to realize our connection with all beings. Everything in our lives has the potential to wake us up or put us to sleep read that again. Everything in our lives has the potential to wake us up or put us to sleep. Allowing it to awaken us is up to us. Perhaps that intention of uh, vowing, uh, that's another way to talk about intention, is vow uh, to wake up. Maybe that is your intention, or maybe not. But, but identifying your intention, whether that's for the next 10 minutes or the next year or your life can be very powerful, very empowering. And of course we lose sight all the time of our intentions. But if we make them conscious, we can return to them like a lodestone. We only have so much life, so much energy. And what a beautiful thing. If we can focus that energy towards what is most important to us, helping us to live our lives in accord with what is most important to us. My heroine, and I'm sure for some of you too, Joanna Macy, writes about this and takes it of um, out of necessarily kind of uh, meditation, but into, into how we are in, in the world. Action isn't a burden to be hoisted up and lugged around on our shoulders. The work we have to do can be seen as a kind of coming alive. More than some moral imperative, it's an awakening to a true nature, a releasing of our gifts. We're like a lens that can focus or a gate that can direct this flow through by schooling our intention. In each moment, our intention gives this energy direction. And I was really struck by this when I read it again today because um, it ties back into that root of the word resolution, which means to free or to release so that intention frees our gifts to manifest in the world. Oh, back to this In In this story about two friends not master and student, but two friends on Tortoise Mountain, Shui Feng's intention, I think, is very pure and vulnerable. Beginner's mind, even though he isn't a beginner, he really wants to wake up. You can feel that in this story. He knows freedom is possible. After all, he's become a monk, and he's wandering around at a time when there were extraordinary Zen masters around every mountain. And he's honest enough to admit that his heart is not at rest, which I find so endearing. But he is so stiff. Just just a, close your eyes for a minute and imagine the two of them in this little room or hut where they are. And his friend is enjoying a nice long winter's nap. And there he is just sitting with his back ramrod straight and maybe a a little scowl on his face because he's trying so incredibly hard. I feel tired just thinking of him. And this is part of why I love this koan. I have been both Shui Feng and Yen Tu depending on the circumstances, but really, uh, and maybe you see yourself too in one of these guys. Are you the one sleeping or the one staying up all night? I know that my mm, foundational way, and certainly what I was like when I first started practice, I was all Shui Feng. I used to call myself tries too hard woman. And somehow when I was thinking about this earlier today, I thought of uh, Alan Watts, a kind of wonderful ancestor who brought a lot of uh, teachings from Asia to uh, 1960s America. And he wrote an autobiography, which I recommend if you enjoy such things, called In My Own Way. Which makes me laugh every time I think about it, because there are so many different ways you can turn that title, including that he was literally in his own way, <laughs> which I think he was in a way. He, he had great understanding, but um, didn't always manage to permeate his life. So this leads me to thinking about effort or energy little further down on the uh, qualities of the Eightfold Path. And also one of the, one of the paramitas, one of the perfections, virya, which um, is translated as energy or diligence or zest or my favorite, enthusiasm. <laughs> and this is when it gets so tricky, as you can see in this story. We think that we know what it means to be lazy and what it means to make effort. But effort is a place where ego and will can become extraordinarily active. And surely that's not what the Buddha meant (laughs) by wise effort. And of course, since we're pretty deluded most of the time, it makes sense that we'd be quite deluded in this area. And in our practice in this area. Because really, if you think about it, in our ordinary life, are we taught anything about effort that doesn't involve a, a gaining mind, and an attempt to get something, get a degree, get a better job, whatever it might be? And isn't that kind of effort often a really, really potent recipe? Or suffering. Such an irony. And I have a feeling, I, maybe this can be part of our conversation afterwards, that Zen may be particularly attractive to those of us who are drawn to trying hard. The gritted teeth meditator. I, I think this is actually how a lot of people who aren't Zen practitioners imagine us, because the Zen literature is full of stories of heroic striving. Uh, Dogen himself tells a story about his teacher, Ru Jing, this very old man shuffling around the meditation hall in the middle of the night, and he takes his slipper off and he's hitting the monks with it to keep them awake. Or uh, Hakuin's uh, disciple, would-be disciple, who cuts off his arm in order to uh, convince Hakuin to let him Study with him, but what if? And this is this is where it gets tricky again. What if our trying hard is motivated by a sense that we're not good enough as we are? Will all that trying to be good, feeling that we're not inherently good, lead to presence and awareness? to opening the heart, to compassion, to awakening. Will trying to wake up using our confused mind and will possibly do anything but feed our confused mind and will? In the old teachings from the Buddha, he talks about this um, quality of effort As that that he was trying to teach, as like tuning a lute. That if the strings are too lax, there's no beautiful sound. And if it's too tight, there's no beautiful sound. That there's a kind of in-between place, and that and that um, it's by paying attention to the sound that you can find that place. But I have a feeling that most of the people here with me tonight uh, are not in the lazy person category not that there aren't people like that but I, I think that's not really the case here I have a feeling you wouldn't be here if you were <laughs> but and if you're if you're really relaxed and lazy you you may need a different kind of talk you might need Rujing's slipper. Or maybe you're just ahead of the rest of us, like Tu was in the hut. I have to tell you that over the years of practice, which there's a lot of them now, that's, it's going on. Um, oh, gosh, I lose track. Uh, anyway, a long time, 35 years or well, actually, I guess, coming up to 40 fairly soon. Uh, I have really come to appreciate ease and relaxation in my practice and in life, even though I do continue to be naturally a Shui fang, So Shui Feng's very relaxed friend has come to be one of my teachers. And, uh, those of you who know, and there are a few people on this call who know me fairly well, and you'll know that this is ironic that I'm speaking of this tonight because I just about worked myself into an early grave as a UU minister. In fact, today is the the ending of my time uh, in the ministry here in Champaign-Urbana because of health issues. And it just goes to show that our deep Habits and conditioning of body and mind uh, can come back under the right set of circumstances, no matter how much you have learned that it really doesn't help. But I do want to say a little more about ease and enjoyment. This has really been a great doorway for me over the years, and maybe this will be helpful for you if if you too are or a shui feng sort of person. You can do sishins or other kinds of retreats or your life with your teeth gritted, trying, trying, trying with all your might. Or you can do sachines as play, as a beautiful, wide open, playful human activity where anything can happen and where amazement may be just around the corner. Years ago, after I had had to leave uh, my previous work because I had overworked and had health problems, I went and did a two-month silent retreat at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California. And I, after all my years of practice where I had had all kinds of big intentions and and really just gave it everything I had. For that retreat, my intention was to listen to the birds sing. That was it. And more opened up in my life in that retreat than really anything I've done before or since from that place of ease and joy. And we can see this in the in the buddha's life story too there's there's a story that's not so well known about uh, the buddha right before his uh, he sat down under the bodhi tree you know he'd been trying really really hard too if you want to hear some stories about trying tries too hard guy just read about the buddha and his ascetic practices for years before he sat down under the bodhi tree and he really Although he'd had all kinds of extraordinary uh, experiences and insights, he, like Shui Feng, uh, felt that his heart was not at rest. And as he thought about that, he remembered being a small child and going out with his father when, uh, for the first plowing, uh, which was a, a ceremonial event uh, out in the fields. Uh, and his father was as a leader was driving the oxen and as a little boy he was left under a rose apple tree in the shade while this event happened and as he sat there peacefully under this flowering tree without doing anything in particular his mind naturally fell into a state of joy and it was from that memory that he sat down under the Bodhi tree, because it and it turns out uh, that to develop really deep concentration doesn't come from tremendous effort. It requires relaxation and ease. And uh, one of the some of the the meditation states that are associated with concentration are called the jhanas, actually. Derivation of the word Chan and Zen, and it's an experience of tremendous happiness without object. And um, here's some really a couple of really nice quotes. Um, one is from the Chinese Zen teacher Xian Yan. and I just love this because it kind of runs counter to everything we think about what Zen is. Be soft in your practice. Think of the method as a fine silvery stream, not a raging waterfall. Follow the stream. Have faith in its course. It will go its own way, meandering here, trickling there. It will find the grooves, the cracks, the crevices. Just follow it. Never let it out of your sight. It will take you. Last week, I uh, told a story uh, from the Thai meditation master, Achan Cha. And here's a quote from uh, Achan Cha. It uh, echoes in some interesting ways what Shen Yan said. Try to be mindful and let things take their course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a still forest pool. All kinds of wonderful animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the awakened one. And just to circle back again to the koan, at one point, and this is the, the kind of critical point for Shui Fang, Yen Tu offers these words. Haven't you heard it said that what comes in through the gate is not the family jewels? We look outside ourselves. We're trained to do that. We're conditioned to do that. But what Yen Tu reminds his friend about is that the jewels are already within. Within his own breast, within his own heart. And I'll just add one of the reasons I most love this koan is so many of those stories, uh, the vast majority are involved, teachers and students, which are beautiful, deep relationships. But so are the relationships between spiritual friends, between uh, Kalyanamita, as it's known in in, um, Pali. And it's really the foundation of the, what developed as teacher-student relationships and that friends can help each other too. And that's very inspiring to me. So to close, please remember it's right here. That pool that Ajahn Chah writes about is in our own heart. We don't have to go tearing over the hills, chasing those elusive animals. They will come to us. They are already us. In The Hidden Lamp, uh, Blanche Hartman, the uh, first abbess of San Francisco Zen Center, talks about the lightness and playfulness and joy of the great Zen, Zen practitioners and teachers that she knew that we don't become all withered up. Actually uh, we become more alive in this practice. And if I could make one wish, one resolution for all of us, including me <laughs> this new year, it is that we trust the power of our basic goodness and intention. What brought you here tonight and the great and joyful freedom that is never farther away than your own heart. And let's just breathe with that, with whatever has struck you in our conversation, <laughs> our one-way conversation, until <laughs> we have a two-way conversation. Let's just spend, I've, I've got a bell here, we'll just um, breathe a few times and then I'll ring the bell to end. Thank you for joining me on the first the first talk after the new year for me.
4: Thank you so much, Florence. Um, so please uh, everyone join the conversation. Anybody who has comments, questions, responses for Florence, you can just raise your hand in the in the zoom window. Uh, Patrick, help me call on people and Uh, You can go also to the participants window in the bottom. And if you click on that, there's a raise hand function at the bottom of that. So uh, comments, responses, questions, feel free. Amina, did I see your hand up? I guess not.
1: Okay, I'll ask you a question. We can all raise our hands if we feel like we are, are we more like Shui Feng? Who's more like Shui Feng, here? My Oh, I'm not the only one, I know that. <laughs> Used to be. <laughs> Who feels like maybe they're a little more like Yen Tu? No, good. <laughs> I know you, Mike, I would agree. <laughs>
2: Jane had
3: her hand Jen.
5: I raised my hand because I feel more like Shui Fang, oh. as <laughs> he said, raise your hand. <laughs> but, you so now know, you have to talk. <laughs> but I did have something to say about the spirit rock. It's very interesting to me that uh, that you've mentioned spirit rock because um, I think. The best well, do I want to say the best of uh, some really fine experiences at spirit Rock were uh actually, I would go there on Friday afternoons and or I don't know what day it was I don't really care, but it but um they they would have a session where uh we would do yoga and then meditation and then have a talk and That sequence was very, very um, good. And I've never been to any place but Spirit Rock where they did that. Uh, And I don't know if you probably, since you were there for two months, um, maybe it wasn't, maybe that was all silent meditation. But uh, before that and after that, maybe you went to those sessions where they did the the yoga and then the meditation and the talk. And um, I really remember Spirit Rock for that. And I think it it would be a really nice way to have a practice when we get back together. I'm not very good at Zooming and, um, uh, you know, sitting here in my house and, I'm much better at meditation when I can't escape my house. But, you know, when I've escaped my house and there's nothing else to do but sit and have, then I can concentrate on meditation. But, you know, here I'm thinking, oh, I look at this, what needs to be fixed. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and so I, uh, so anyway, I just wanted to mention that about Spirit Rock because it was, it was such a, it was so helpful for me to be able to go there and do that. That's
1: it. Well, you bring up an important point about, um, I mean, I always say that our meditation practice, Zazen, is a very embodied practice. Yeah. But, but yoga can get us more in the body. And no, they didn't have, their, I think there was a little bit of Qigong, <laughs> but there was very little. Uh, it was it was sitting and walking for two months in silence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I will say that, um, I think it's a very beautiful land uh, that mm-hmm. Spirit Rock is on, and there there is a lot of, uh, I think the land is kind of suffused with the joy of practice in many ways. So you can kind of pick up on it if you're quiet enough. I wish we talked more about joy. I mean, not that I'm always joyful, but uh, I think that there is deep, deep joy in practice. And... Um, it doesn't have to be as grim as sometimes it feels.
5: I mentioned Spirit Rock to my son today because he's been so isolated because of COVID. And you know, I was staying at his house when I went to Spirit Rock and he could go there. So <laughs> well, I mean, right. We, we got to go. <laughs> yeah. It's it's probably the closest Zen practice. No, no there's others. There's other Zen practices in San Rafael. But um the one that I went to on a regular basis, Tigen started in San Rafael, and um, they've gone up north somewhere. I don't know where they are now.
1: Yeah, I wonder how many groups Tigen has started. <laughs> mm-hmm.
4: Florence, you sat with me at Bolinas, mm-hmm. and uh, the San Rafael group is still going. I think they're there. I think it's down in El Cerrito, but uh, Layla Smith is leading it now. Mm -hmm. So it's still still happening 15 years later. Yeah.
5: Oh, yeah, I know it was still going, but I know that they moved. Yeah.
4: Not El Cerrito. Um, Anyway, down a little bit south of Stenrifield.
1: I thought they went
4: north, but okay.
2: Carol has her hand up. And then I saw Mina and then Ed.
6: Thank you. I just want to, I just want to say that I'm a member of Mountain Source. Oh, Oh, yes. And,
1: um, when we were still sitting in person, I was the host at the Bolinas sitting. Oh. So this world, this world is very dear to me and we're practicing on Zoom like everybody else right now. Um, Zoom has made it possible for us to have people from all over. So we have Californians and people from Boise and a rancher from Montana, and it's it has its advantages, and it's lovely to be with you here tonight.
4: Thank you very much. Uh, Maybe you uh, came there after I had escaped California. I (laughs) remember if we Uh met each other, but it's it's true. I was talking about this yesterday that. Uh, the pandemic and Zoom has been a great teacher in interconnectedness. So we have people here now I can see from the Bay Area and from Los Angeles and from Minneapolis and from Michigan and from Cleveland and probably more. So anyway, uh, thank you.
1: And we were going to be joined by somebody from Australia. I'm afraid she might've gotten the time uh, difference wrong. (laughs) She was flatting on joining, so yeah, no, there are advantages. But you know, like with that story, right? There, there's something. One of the things about that wonderful koan, and um, I just had a curiosity: how many of you knew that that story? Again, you could raise your hands. We won't call on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a handful. Well, I'm glad to have introduced it to you. It's not. It's not a terribly well known one, but, um, but there it's so embodied, right? There they are. They're snowed in. They, they can't walk out. They're stuck with each other. And, and, um, each of them sort of manifesting in the way they are. Uh, it's, it's a reminder of, of the power, right? Of uh, what Darlene Cohen used to call body to body practice. And I think we can, I, so it's kind of a balance, you know, we can have that kind of practice and we can have this kind of practice, which, across great distances and there's beauty in both. So people other people had their hands up. Ed and Mina. Um
0: I'll go ahead. Uh, just uh going back for a second to what Jan said, I I noticed that, you know, sometimes when I'm sitting I sort of soften into it, you know, just physically into my body and into the space. And sometimes I sort of like harden and get sort of I don't know, tense. And so I thought, well, maybe I should start doing some stretching and yoga before, before sitting. And so I did that tonight. It didn't seem to make a difference because tonight for some reason I kind of hardened, you know, like, um, not, I don't know if it was so much like the sort of like hard effort, but just, um, you know, the distracted mind. And I, I think sometimes in the past, I've thought, well, okay, this is a relief in a way that I can see my mind spinning because it means there's some separation from it. But lately it feels like something that tenses me up because, you know, I don't want it to be there. Um, But it's, I guess I'm saying a number of different things at once, but just, just thinking about some of these, some of these questions. And, and um, of course, liking when I soften and not liking when I sort of like get rigid, you know Um, but I guess that's just the practice, you know, just to be with all of it.
1: Yeah, and I think, though, I think sometimes feeling that tension, you know, being aware of it, can it can be a little clue that there might be some resistance to something, <laughs> to some reality, <laughs> right, whether it's a busy mind or some suffering or whatever. It's so, you know, practice is so subtle. And I had a whole experience in another retreat where I, I, I thought that I was deeply um, mm, not attached to uh, whether or not I had a lot of physical pain. And then I realized that I was enduring it. And like the difference between enduring and accepting, right? It's, it's another kind of subtlety, but there was, a, there was an element of clenching my teeth, and when I saw that, it was just a revelation, right? And, and um, with awareness, it's possible to see those things and then to be curious about, well, huh, what am I, what am I resisting here? What am I wishing is, was different? Like Shui Feng. Oh, uh,
7: thank you very much, Florence. I think it was very cold in Champagne this morning, wasn't it?
1: Extremely. Fourteen degrees. I don't know if it was colder up where you were, but it was yeah, oh, pretty no. cold.
7: And then um it looks like this coming year is gonna be very different for you from years past if you're re- if you're retired from ministry.
1: <laughs> Everybody keeps saying retired. <laughs> I'm not quite old enough to be retired, but I am taking a break. Oh, yes.
7: Well, congratulations! I, Thank you. When I was in high school, the Holy Cross tried to sort of recruit me for the priesthood, and I was like, "No, you already had eighteen years of me. That's enough." And I, I, at the end, I don't think I had the emotional depth and capacity that would be required for ministry. It was very stressful and demanding. It you always know, had to be available to community, and I don't think I could do that. Um, but as regards your talk, you know the intentionality has always been a very mysterious thing to me because it's unclear to me it's territory to the degree that it is cultural or personal or where that blend exactly exists. And I'm going to do a very, very brief quote from Peter Block, who unfortunately was always in the business section of the New York Times when he was writing. But he, he wrote, Our willingness to act on what matters to us struggles to find its place in a world based on instrumentality. If we gain mm-hmm. enough clarity about our intentions and decide to bring them into the world, we come face to face with a culture that is indifferent towards the idealism, intimacy and depth that this requires. Because- oh, that's a great quote. Wow. And just one. There's only one other line. We begin to think of life as instrumental rather than intimate idealism mm-hmm. as a liability and intimacy as self-indulgence. And well, I think- I mean, Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And thank you for bringing that. to my, It's very consistent, I thought, in some ways. I mean, not nearly as expansive as how you've introduced the notion of intentionality. But I think it brings to bear the question of, of how difficult it is to maintain and identify a true intention in our, in our lives.
1: Well, and it's interesting to me that, um, and I think it says a lot about our culture, that New Year's resolutions are almost always uh, individualistic. Right there, I'm going to do this to make a better body or a better mind or whatever. And there's nothing really wrong with that, but um, it's it's separated from the whole. Right? We see that in responses to the pandemic, right? We we um, and this is of course a natural human tendency. The Buddha taught about this, but but it's. Um, I think it is more life-affirming to to widen our intention, it, just like that quote, just so beautiful. And the Joanna Macy quote too, which I really love.
3: Uh, Matt, Matt
4: has his hand up.
3: Thank you for your talk, Lawrence. Um I love New Year's resolutions. I don't know if uh, you can speak more to that. I just wanted to add a couple of things. I was at my son's wrestling practice as I was listening to you talk about that. So I apologize if I, if you did talk about this. But um, you said 90% of people um, stop following it after about three weeks. Well, 10% keep going. I mean, I think that's kind of beautiful. And um, I think making a really wholesome resolution is pretty incredible and pretty wonderful, especially if it's not selfish, but selfless. And um, I know in my past, I I would need to do like seven years of resolutions before they would stick. I would make July resolutions and November resolutions. And eventually some of them, you know, eventually it did stick for some of them, the ones that were really, you know, a little bit bigger than myself. So I don't know if you want to speak to that, but it is kind of a beautiful practice. You know, we've kind of butchered it a little bit, but it is, um, I think at its heart, it's pretty wonderful.
1: Well, you know, my long-term teacher, um, Norman Fisher, uh, ta- talks a lot about intention. He really sees that as fundamental to our practice. I guess the Buddha did too, if you think about the Eightfold Path. But one of the things he always encouraged was to um, – and this this gets really tricky, right? The difference between intention and um, desire, right, for a particular outcome. But, um, you know, to really – before um, starting a Sashin to have a really clear intention. I think like my story about the, my intention to listen to the birds, that was from years of being with Norman, who would say, you know, what what is your intention as you go into this time? Uh, So I think you're right that it can be a a kind of, mm, you know, connection with the path and to what most matters to us in a way that can be really powerful. Absolutely. Tigan, do you have any comments on that on that, uh, Cohen?
4: Um well, I, I appreciate both of them, you know. Um and The guy who was sitting still and, you know, pushing himself and everything, you know, on some level looks silly by comparison to the guy who was just, you know, enjoying taking it easy. But um, you you need both sides and sometimes one, sometimes the other. And so uh, we do need to push ourselves sometimes, but it's so nice when we can just relax. (laughs)
1: How much snow do you have there? Are you are you uh, kind of snowed in a little, or Chicago maybe never gets snowed in? I don't know.
4: Um, I wasn't out today. Who, um, Ed, how much snow was there outside? More than I
5: want. <laughs> <laughs> I, again, I'm just a couple blocks from you. Uh, there, there's only a little bit that's stuck. Just... Yeah, a
4: few inches maybe.
5: Yeah. Okay. All so right. no, we're, but we have. I mean, we do get snowed in. I mean, you know, we've gotten like you know a couple of years ago, we're like 15, fifteen inches, but it's not like that.
1: The thing was, maybe so next it, time you're snowed in, you can think of you can think of these two guys.
5: Yeah, the thing about it in Chicago was that it got so cold. And it it isn't that cold anymore, but it, it did get down to like. Well, this morning, uh, the wind chill was negative one or two, something like that.
2: Yeah.
4: It's supposed to be much colder than that Thursday and Friday. Something to look forward to. I
5: don't know. <laughs> I've, I've felt a lot more snowed in, you know, like because of the pandemic. like
1: Oh, yeah. Ah. I'm
5: like being able to, just want, wanting to spread stuff around or whatever. And then, yeah.
1: Well, that's a really good point. Maybe, maybe uh, that's another way to think about the koan. It's like yeah. how to how to practice with the with the ways that we're shut in by the pandemic. Yeah, we just I, need a good friend. Yeah, <laughs> the sleeping part. <laughs> yeah.
4: So, uh other anybody else, Patrick? Do you have a question or comment?
2: I. Um, Thank you very much for your talk. I, I really en- enjoyed sort of the bookends on the around the new year. Um, and I, I enjoyed, um, and maybe you can talk more about sort of the joyful aspect because um, the root that I've been dealing with is tension. So I've been sitting in tension mm-hmm. with intention, having... Attention, <laughs> um, and I find that that your comments about sort of joyfulness in practice sort of help sort of round out that tension, sort of to get at that right level of energy and effort. You, mentioned so, if you maybe talk about that sort of joyfulness a little more, yeah, in, sure. in context yeah. with intention.
1: So this might not seem relevant, but I think it is. It's what came to mind as you were talking. Uh, and um, I almost told this story actually in the talk, but I, um, as you can tell, I I practiced both Zen and, um, you know, Theravadan Buddhism at times. And I had a chance uh, several times to go down to San Diego uh, to the Metta Monastery, which is run by Thanissaro Bhikkhu, who's a, um, you know, Thai forest tradition monk. And the first time I was there, I went to his meditation instruction and he, get, and I mean, this is an extremely ascetic form of uh, and traditional form of Buddhist practice. And I was gobsmacked by his instructions for paying attention to the breath. Cause he said, look for where the breath is most pleasurable in the body uh and bring your attention there. And I and all the years that I had heard meditation instruction, I've never heard that. And to and to see it from a like celibate monk, right? Go with where it's most pleasurable. And what he said was um the mind is more at ease um if you can help it rest in a place in the body that is that is not tense, that is not um constricted. And, uh, and I started doing that practice and it, it was pretty incredible, you know, and we're kind of taught, you know, pay attention to the tip of the nose or the horror or, you know, different things in different traditions or in, in Soto Zen, nothing at all, but, but to pay attention to that it's okay for the mind to rest in ease. It was just, it was kind of a revelation for me. So I don't know if that speaks at all to what you're talking about, but I just wanted to offer that.
7: Thank you.
4: I'll just add that we have this chant we do, uh, not infrequently called the Song of the Grass Hut, and in part part it says... um, uh, let go of hundreds of years and relax completely, which is not how people usually think of, you know, the ideal of Zen.
1: There's actually a, a gra- another great story that I was very surprised by. So, you know, Lin or or Rinzai, the guy that's sort of is the foundational teacher of the Rinzai school, which of course is, seems very tough. There's a beautiful story about him sleeping in the zendō. <laughs> And that, that uh, you know, somebody says, oh, yeah, he's the one who's really meditating. But he's actually sound asleep. He's not pretending to be asleep. He is asleep. So uh, it's just nice to know that even the really tough guys in our tradition are sometimes sleeping. I hope I'm not undermining your teaching, Tigan. <laughs> not at all.
4: Go ahead. Not at all. Joyful intention is uh, always welcome.
2: Okay, thank you.
6: I wanted to, I was thinking about the question, um, what is the difference between intention and desire? Because I felt like I really had a lot of trouble with that. And I don't have a good analogy for it yet, but I feel like the one difference is an intention... Shouldn't be a goal. It should be a direction. So, so maybe like the North Star, Mm -hmm. it tells you which way to go, (laughs) but you accept that you're not there, and you also accept that you're not going to get there. It's just, it's just it's just an orientation i guess
1: i think that's that's um perfectly put hmm. and it's very tricky right because it can so easily slide over into a goal <laughs> yeah but i think i think you you're absolutely or you know and that's when desire really gets going right yeah and also judgment right if you if you don't get there
6: yeah yeah, so you can't look at the star too hard.
3: <laughs> right, kind of that soft <laughs> gaze.
6: Then it's right. all like, "Oh, I'm not uh, that's where I want to be and that's not and I'm not there. Oh no. It has to be kind of I guess there's the d- two parts of it. There's the there's that orientation or direction and then also the genuine okayness with where you actually are. Mhm.
1: Yeah, I think I think which is a kind of um, paradox, but yes, I would agree.
4: Thank you, Ming. Thank you, Florence. Uh, any other comments, responses before we stop?